You're listening to Sweet Talk, all things maple. Welcome back to Sweet Talk. Recording from the Cornell Eline Forest in the Adirondacks, I'm Adam Wild, and joining me from the Arnott Forest is my colleague and co-host, Aaron Whiteman. Hello, Aaron. Hi, Adam. Welcome back to Sweet Talk. The leaves are off the trees up here in the Adirondacks, and we had a little snow today, and recently we've had nighttime temperatures a little below freezing, with our daytime temperatures hitting the high 30s to low 40s. That sounds a lot like sugaring weather. Yeah, exactly. I think it's time to get out there and tap those trees. Right, that's what we thought. You and I both tapped trees recently and have collected a fair amount of sap within the past week. And I even tapped before we had our first freeze and I'm collecting a lot of sap just through the force of the vacuum in the tubing. The trees we're tapping, though, are for a research project to quantify the total dormant season sap production potential in our trees. Yeah, it's been interesting to track sap production during that entire dormant season instead of just the spring. So in thinking about tapping our trees this fall, I called up Dr. Abby Vandenberg from the University of Vermont Proctor Maple Research Center to have a discussion about her recent project on fall tapping. Welcome, Abby, to Sweet Talk. It's great to have you here with us today. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to chat with you today about as we're coming into the dormant season and our leaves are off the trees and we're starting to have some freeze-thaw events similar to what we experienced during the spring sap flow. So sap will flow at this time in the fall when we have those freeze-thaw events. And there are a few producers who will tap in the fall. And so you've recently did a three-year study on a, what we can call extended season tapping. But before we get into that actual project and your research results, I want to talk a little bit about fall tapping with you. So how much sap can you actually get? What's the sap sugar? And what are some of the challenges with fall tapping? Well, there are actually quite a few challenges with fall tapping. Anyone that's done it for real can attest to this. So in the early periods of dormancy, sap sugar concentration might be as low as half of what it would be as the tree starts to exit dormancy during our sort of standard spring production season. But that's pretty variable. During our research, we found sometimes some trees that had fairly high sap sugar concentrations in some falls. So, you know, it's hit or miss, but generally speaking, the sap sugar concentration is low. And then if you are tapping in the fall to continue, obviously, through the rest of the production season, you really have to be mindful of things like snow depth. And so where are you going to put that tap hole so that it is accessible and not buried (laughs) when you actually have the subsequent winter snowfalls? And That is not so easy to predict. And I know that some people that have done some fall tapping in more northern locations, especially, will tap on a ladder in the fall to make sure that they actually have access to that tap hole in the spring. And you can imagine tapping a few trees on a ladder is maybe okay, but, you know, (laughs) 10,000, even a thousand, that's pretty hefty challenge. Something that I, for, for one, probably wouldn't want to undertake. Yeah, I certainly do not want to be carrying a ladder throughout the woods for that many trees, right? For sure. Another thing to think about, if you tap a tree in the fall, is that tap hole going to be flowing in the springtime as well, right? So that's a a really big critical piece to think about. Absolutely. And so that was one of the main questions that we were looking at in our research was, well, how, how long does it stay open? Because certainly we've seen 
in all of our recent research at Cornell and here and other places, you know, with improvements in vacuum and sanitation, we're really able to have good yields from tap holes that are made much earlier. So that much earlier in the fall, you know, what do those yields actually look like? And that was one of the main questions that we wanted to answer. Great. So you've you've been doing this project for the the last three years, correct? That you were tapping in the fall and looking at what was the total production. Can you step us through a little bit of kind of what your methodology was and your goals for that project? Yeah. So we were actually looking at a variety of early tapping strategies. So not just fall tapping, but also early winter, because you know, fall is attractive for different reasons than early winter tapping. So, you know, kind of depending on where, where we're located, we're thinking of early winter tapping as maybe before the new year in places like northern Vermont, where we have a typical mid-February to mid-April sat flow season. And that timing has more to do with, okay, we might capture some January thaws, some of those sap flows. So do we get any advantage from doing that? And also just from practical purposes, a lot of producers with large operations need to get those taps in pretty early to make sure that they're all established by the time that the main sap flow season actually starts. So we wanted to look at both fall tapping and that early winter tapping And we also wanted to look at whether if we do these alone, how do those yields compare to just if we waited till a standard spring tapping time, but also if we did some of that fall or early winter tapping with some subsequent rejuvenation of the tap hole to kind of freshen those vessels, how would those do relative to the standard spring tapping? So we had 80 trees all in the same stand They were each plumbed into an individual sap collection chamber. And we looked at eight different of those treatments, including the control, which was just standard spring tapping. And so each treatment had 10 different trees and we had them equally matched for diameter between the treatments. And so we would tap each of the trees with their treatment and then collect the sap volume and sap sugar content across the entire season over which they were tapped so that we could quantify what is the actual total yield from that treatment for the whole season in which it was tapped. And then, like you said, we repeated that for three years because obviously with something like fall and early winter tapping, there's a really potentially huge impact of the kind of weather we have in one year to another that will potentially impact whether one of those early tapping treatments was more successful or less successful. Yeah, that's certainly a tricky part about the maple research is that seasonal variation changes so much. So one result one year could be different the other year, right? Totally. And we really saw that highlighted well in the results of this study for sure. Yeah. So when you're doing the fall tapping, roughly, you know, so that was probably different each year because of those seasonal differences. So roughly what time of year were you tapping in the fall? For us, so we were waiting until both we had entered dormancy, so the leaves were gone from the tree, and we had had that first freeze that we needed to have. So that ranged anywhere from, I believe, around the third week in October to early November for us. And like you pointed out, that will be different in any area. Yep. So you wait until you get a first freeze, and then you go out and tap? Yeah, that was how we decided to standardize it in that study. Yeah, I could bring this up because we have a small 
fall tapping total dormant season sap collection study as well right now. And I'm actually debating today, should I go out and tap my trees? Because our frost has been super late this year for Lake Placid region where the Eline Forest is. And so I'm wondering, should I go out at the end of October now and tap my trees today? Or should I wait until I get that frost and then go tap? Yeah, I think there are a lot of different people that would say for different reasons to wait until it was frozen, but we could go debate that all day long and everybody would still be right. So you have not had a frost in Lake Placid yet, have you? Correct. Yeah. So it's October 21st that we're recording this. We have not had a frost, which I was told by somebody, this is the latest ever on record that we've gone without having a frost yet. Yeah, it's a similar story here. I'm not sure about records, but we have not had a frost yet. And I can say, at least from my experience, that's very unusual. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird to have no leaves on the trees. And yet still, there are a few leaves on some maples close to the sugar house. But for the most part in the forest, there's no leaves on the trees. But yet we still haven't had a frost. Interesting. So we still have, I mean... We're clearly in the leaf drop phase, but um, you know we haven't lost all of the leaf cover yet. So there's still quite a few leaves out there. Yeah, we lost most of ours. I would say last week, they dropped quick, even without rain, although we've had some rain since, but they, we lost a lot of them within a few days and they were nicer days. Usually, you know, you need that rain or heavy wind and they, they were just dropping. Right, that's actually, that's really interesting. That really highlights the differences between Eline and the Proctor Center. We're in two completely different microclimates here, which makes it awesome that we get to do a lot of parallel work because we can, especially in a study like this, we could have completely different results doing it at your place versus our place. For sure. And we're we're really not even all that far away. And then you throw in like the Arnott Forest, which is, you know, a lot farther south than than both of our locations, but our elevation is definitely different. You know, the line forest, I'm a lot higher in elevation and a colder area than where, where you are at the Proctor Forest. Right, for sure. Yeah, so you kind of said that you're thinking maybe right at the end of December, early January for your location, that's kind of where you're doing your, your winter tapping, correct? Yeah, and that varied quite a bit in our study, you know, because in one year we we had such cold temperatures in December and January that there was actually like no point in putting the tap hole in until mid-January, which was a little late for our early winter tapping, but it was where early winter tapping sort of fell that year. But otherwise, on a more standard year, it would be sort of the very beginning of January to late December, edging toward the mid-December time point. But, you know, to do a study like this, you know, where does fall end and early winter begin can be a little bit of a a nebulous question. Yep. Yeah, it is. It's tricky. And each year is so different. And you don't know if you're going to get those thaws. But but I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Because, you know, as you said, there are a lot of producers who are they have to these larger operations that have to start in early January. Then there's also regional differences where end of December, early January is maybe when they need to start tapping because that's they may be getting some big flows. Exactly. I think that's really important to emphasize, especially because I'm sure you have a lot of listeners that are outside of northern Vermont and northern New York. And, you know, you and I just casually talk about these time periods as early tapping times for us when, yeah, in a place like southern Ohio or West Virginia or parts of Pennsylvania or even parts of New York, 
tapping in parts of December and certainly early January may be literally the time to tap. And the word early should be just thrown out of the equation. And I think that's a, an important thing that we all need to get more used to um, as we all respond to a changing overall climate. Because you've probably gotten the question, I've gotten the question, you know, from new producers of when should they go tap their trees? And that's a tricky question because it's not the same if you're in Lake Placid or if you're in Southern Ohio or something like that. It definitely isn't. And, you know, the old advice that we'll look at what your neighbors are doing and you know, <laughs> base it on that probably at this point is not the best advice for a new producer. That just isn't likely the most productive way to go in many of these areas. Yeah. And you brought up that changing climate in these different areas and that it may be it is changing that date a little bit in certain regions of when we need to have those taps and that that sanitation is really important. Definitely. So I want to jump now to what you would call your spring control, that spring tapping date. So when was that time of the year, roughly? Yeah. So for us at the Proctor Center, so for the study, we based that spring tapping date on the date that we tapped our regular maple operation here. And so that is usually about the second week in February. So that's a tighter date range because like for any other producer, that depends on a lot of different variables. And so that was for us between February 12th and February 19th. Great. So let's go back to, so you're tapping trees, your fall trees are in end of October, early mid-November. So thinking, as we mentioned before, that those tap holes are not going to be flowing as well through the spring. So you had to look at some of those different rejuvenation techniques. Let's step through the different rejuvenation practices that you tried in your study. Sure. And so we did most of these for both our fall and early winter tapping treatments. So we had the controls so that we just tapped early and let go and didn't do anything else too. We also had trees that we tapped in those early time periods that we would subsequently do some kind of rejuvenation treatment. And what's important to note is that for the most part, what we were looking at was rejuvenation treatments done at the same time as our standard spring tapping date. So that's pretty different than making a tap hole at the standard spring tapping time and rejuvenating it later in the season. So I know you'll probably, we'll talk about that later, but for the primary treat treatments in our study, we were doing things like on the standard spring tapping date, we would one of our treatments was simply to drill the tap hole deeper. So we would enlarge our tap holes to two and a half inches deep on the spring tapping date. One of our treatments was making the tap holes both wider and deeper. And for those, we had tapped those initially in the fall and early winter with quarter inch holes and quarter inch spouts. So that on the same date as the spring control tapping was done, we would enlarge those to five sixteenth inch wide but also make them deeper to that two and a half inches. We also did one, which I know you have looked at before too, and so has Steve Child as well as Aram. We did one where we tapped a single tap hole in the fall, and then in the spring, we drilled a separate individual tap hole of the same exact size, two inches above that first hole, and of course, plugged the initial hole so there wasn't a vacuum leak. Those were our primary rejuvenation treatments. 
Great. So you had some where you went deeper, some you went wider and deeper, and then a brand new hole a couple inches above. So making sure everybody understands those. Just as succinctly as that. <laughs> There's a lot of detail. So when we get to the results, we got to try to organize this all. So you did that on some of your trees in the fall, and you also did that on your early winter tapping. And then comparing that, your control was tapping on that second week of February, which is your normal just before your sap flow season, correct? Exactly. So if we actually look back, you did that for three years, you collected the sap volume, you collected sap sugar from all those dates. And what did you find out? Well, what did we find out? (laughs) I think we got actually excellent yields from most of the treatments. And that is not uncommon on a single tree canister collection study because everything is optimized, right? You have no leaks, you have super great sanitation and no losses in the sugar house. So not surprising, we have pretty good yields on most of the the treatments, but really what we were interested in is how did they do relative to that spring control tapping? So it was easier to express those results as a percentage if spring control was 100%. And so what we found is that those control tap holes, be it in the fall or the early winter, did yield less sap than tapping at the standard spring time. So on average over the three years, the fall control holes yielded 84% the total syrup of spring control holes. So about a 16% loss. And for the winter controls, they average 92% of the spring control tap holes. So about an 8% loss or reduction. Okay, because those tap holes were open for a longer time period, there was some microbial plugging that happened. So you got 16% less than just waiting and tapping in February. Presumably because that tap hole was open longer, microbial kind of plugged it. So when you had some of your best flows later, you know, during the spring flow when the sugar is higher, the production was not as high. Yes. And, you know, it's probably not just microbial impacts, but the tree begins responding to that wound immediately as long as we have temperatures above freezing. But hey, guess what? If the sap is flowing, temperatures are above freezing. So the tree is going to respond to that wound. It begins to compartmentalize it and wall it off. And we also have them open longer with microbial impacts happening, which speed up that compartmentalization process. So all of that is going together. And the longer those tap holes are open, the more that compartmentalization and basically the drying of the tap hole is going to happen. So we we certainly saw that in the study. And that was despite having good sanitation, super good vacuum, we did see some reduction relative to just waiting to tap until our standard time. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And a lot of times I think we think that that compartmentalization, oh, that's not really happening until after the leaves come out. But you're actually finding that it's really starting as long as that temperature is warmer. It can start a lot sooner, soon after you tap, correct? Yeah, it, it's super complex. And I, I don't mean to like make it sound like it's so simple, um, <laughs> but <laughs> like... Um, Because there are effects like it will happen faster in certain portions of the season than others. And certainly it happens way faster if you make a wound when there's leaves on the trees. 
but we know that it can and does happen in the dormant period because, you know, trees are, there's no leaves, but the tree is certainly alive and doing all sorts of stuff, right? So we do know that that compartmentalization can and does happen as long as there are temperatures enough to support sort of biological activity, which is certainly going to happen numerous times from fall tapping all the way to spring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's surprising that even your kind of early winter ones said that it wasn't a huge difference, but a slight reduction. Right. And what's interesting about that is that depending on who I'm speaking to and who's hearing that result, that 8% could be a good or a bad thing. Like it could be a negligible loss if it means I'm going to get all 60,000 of my taps in, or it mm-hmm. can be an extraordinary, almost a 10% reduction, right? It, if I'm kind of thinking about maybe tapping a little early to just capture some early flows, that 8% loss is a big loss. So it really depends on your perspective, what that 8% means. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Because if you, if you waited to tap and, and you've got 60,000 taps and you don't get them all in by the time sap is really flowing, then you might miss out on 20% because you're missing some flows when it's really starting to kickstart. So that 8% could be a, a trade off. Exactly. And I should mention, you know, this is important to note that although, you know, we're talking about differences of 8%, 16%, et cetera. Statistically speaking, we did not find any statistically significant differences in any of these treatments relative to the control. And that is important to note. Probably that has mostly to do with the fact that there are only 10 trees for each treatment, which is crazy because 10 trees is actually quite a lot under many circumstances. But it's you know important to mention that, that we're talking about general patterns and not statistically significant ones. Yeah. Yeah. That's key. Yeah. So certainly I think one of the things, if any of us wanted to do this in the future and really hone in on one or two or three of these treatments, it would be great to do it with a much larger sample size with 20 or 30 for each of the treatments and see really how that bore out. But then, you know, you're into another three to five year study with all of that. And, Mm -hmm. And you know, as well as I do, how complicated and expensive that gets. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very complicated. And it's it's one thing, you know, we all know as maple producers that that maple season is you don't get much time to sleep or time off, right? That's full out for that kind of six week window. But now you're talking about not that sap's flowing during that entire time, but you're talking about tapping trees and running vacuum in October and going all the way through to May. The first year we did this, I was still doing birch research. And I wanted to die at the end of that year because my season went from October through the middle of May. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I'm I'm not excited about going out and tapping these fall trees right now because I know that's it's all starting and it won't be over until May. Exactly. Yeah, maybe maybe you definitely want to wait until it freezes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I think you got me convinced. <laughs> it's also raining today and I don't want to go tap in the rain. Good point. Very good point. Being soft. <laughs> so 
let's let's go back now. So that was just looking at those controls where you just tap and left that same spout in that entire time period. So now let's look at what did you find when you did some of those rejuvenation? You know, so now you're into some newer wood. Did that help increase production and ultimately be better than that spring control? Okay. Well, the results were a little bit mixed, variable, let's say. So I guess if we start with that second hole treatment where we drilled the totally new tap hole above the first one, that had a 3% increase. Essentially, there was no difference, no increase in yield, which was surprising because look, in that case, we're not kind of exposing some new vessels. We're making a whole entire new tap hole in the spring. And so that was an epic fail of a treatment for us. And so what it appeared to be was that, again, that compartmentalization had likely already begun at least to an extent enough that we weren't able to get like yields from a brand new hole by tapping in the same vertical position as the old hole. And I guess we need to back up a little bit and say that the reason that all of us started looking at these treatments is it was an idea to try and get increased yields from a new hole, but to minimize the total amount of non-conductive wood that was generated by the two holes by sneaking the new one in the area that would have been the non-conductive wood from the first hole. Like we were trying to trick the tree and the yield results show us that we're probably wrong about that, that we were tapping into wood that was probably already beginning to be non-conductive, even after just a few months of being open. Hmm. Yeah, so you're actually not getting much of a benefit, but you're spending more time, you're going back on out there, drilling a new hole, putting a new spout, you have to plug that old tap hole, so there's a lot more labor and material cost on top of the extra potential damage that you're doing to the tree as well. Totally. Exactly. Like way more cost to get exactly the same yield basically as waiting until the spring. And then that other very significant cost that doing that second hole made more total non-conductive wood than just two separate holes that, you know, basically because we were tapping in the column of non-conductive wood from that first lower hole, just like hitting an area of an old tap hole when you're tapping, that tends to produce proportionally more non-conductive wood. So mm. it was worse than just two separate holes. <laughs> yep. Wow. Yeah, which is pretty surprising. It has to do with that. You're not always drilling into the tree at the same angle, you know, drilling into something round. And so you might be, your angle might be slightly off than that other one, right? So you're not always just hitting into that same column of wood. Yeah. And, but truthfully, what we found was even when they were well aligned, it still made more non-conductive wood than two holes. <laughs> mm. It was really interesting. It, yep. it, the, the tree is, is not fooled. And basically there's a lot of active Activity going on to help compartmentalize that initial wound. And that is going to inhibit the response of the tree to the new wound because it's in that area that's already 
compromised. It's really, it's fascinating. I mean, I could spend all day thinking about it, but, you know, from a functional perspective, it's kind of like, you know, it was already not worth doing because of the just sheer expense and extra time, extra labor, extra materials to get like basically no more sap. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll jump in here and say too, that I've tested this for like the past three seasons. And I've also found that it it gave me a maybe a slight boost, but it wasn't that much and it wasn't worth all the time and material that you put into it, not even considering the stress or the additional non-conductive wood that you're forming within that tree that's there. So for our kind of northern region especially, did not seem to be effective. And that's really important to highlight because the studies that you did weren't kind of pushing the compartmentalization envelope of this by tapping in the fall, you were just tapping a little early and you weren't tapping super close like we did, right? We did two inches. And I think your studies were doing more like eight inches, six to eight inches away. Correct. Yep. Yeah. And so you're still seeing not that much benefit, even though it was a little bit more optimized to try and make that second hole do its best. And I think that's really important to know that in none of these conditions did it give enough sap to make it worthwhile doing despite the costs. Yeah. Yeah. And I did some studies, you know, we're putting a new spout and you got to think, you know, are you going to recoup the cost of that 25 cent spout or whatever in that little bit of bump of syrup, let alone the labor. And I've also done some just moving the spout, but you still have to plug that old hole and there's still the labor in there. And it's just really doesn't pay off that I see. That's, I think that's really, really important that it's not just one study. It's all, st- all the studies. Yeah. That's great. It it could be different in very, maybe in say West Virginia or a Southern region that maybe has a thaw in December and then it gets warm again in February and you kind of have these two seasons. Do you see that maybe there's some potential for something like that down there? For the putting a hole vertically proximate to the first one, I think looking at the results of your study and our study, that I think that pretty much shows that it's not going to work no matter what the climate, because what we're seeing, I think, is the impact of the compartmentalization of the first hole. And so, yeah, I don't think that is going to be overcome in an area with a different climate. So. Now, other rejuvenation treatments may be a different story, which I guess we can we can talk about now if you'd like. Yeah, yeah. Let's jump into the results on your going deeper or wider and deeper. Yeah. So one treatment, we put the quarter inch tapple in the fall and then ream them to five sixteenth and also deeper in the spring. That also had no difference from our spring control tapples. It was on average 97% of the yield. So for whatever reason, even with the differences in the types of seasons we had over those three years, that just never bore fruit. So we can eliminate that one just based on yield, you know, no, no benefit whatsoever and twice the work, at least twice the work. But for our fall tap holes that we just did a 516 tap hole in the fall and redrilled it deeper in the spring, those gave us on average 16% more sap than our spring control holes, as did the early winter tap holes that we redrilled to deeper and our early winter tap holes that were quarter inch and then made to five sixteenths and two and a half inch deep 
those had on average about 20% more sap than our spring controls. So our fall deeper, winter deeper, and winter wider and deeper, all three of those gave yields that were greater than what we got from our spring control tapples. So a little bit of bump there. And those ones that obviously when you're going from a quarter inch to five sixteenths is a new spout, but did all those when you were doing any of those rejuvenation, was it always a new spout? Everything got a new spout. And I think that's important to emphasize because that's not just an added expense. It's also an added pain. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing that's important to note is that our spring control tap holes were, in the first year, they were one and a half inch deep. And all of our deeper treatments, those that had more sap, the final tap hole depth was two and a half inches. So I can't say from these results how much of the increased yields from those rejuvenation treatments was from tapping them earlier, rejuvenating them, and how much was simply from the deeper hole that we put in relative to the spring control tap hole. Hmm. So, so you are seeing a 20% increase. Is there a benefit to that? Or were there other things that would kind of keep you to shy away from even recommending that? Well, I'm glad you asked because yes, in a separate study, we studied the size of the non-conductive wood columns that were created by rejuvenated tap holes or tap holes that we subsequently made deeper or wider and deeper. And what we found surprised me. We found that tap holes that we had rejuvenated in some way generated disproportionately more non-conductive wood than a control tap hole of that same final volume. So they weren't just making more non-conductive wood because they were bigger holes. Like we all know that basically the rule of thumb is bigger holes make more non-conductive wood, but these were making proportionally more non-conductive wood than tap holes of that same size. And so it showed that we're actually basically doing more damage to the tree than we would in just a single undisturbed tap hole. And from a tree health and sustainability level, that for me makes tap hole rejuvenation not a recommended practice for sure. Hmm. So in an an area though, where maybe it's a longer growing season and trees are growing very well, trees are healthy versus my trees up here in Lake Placid where we have a very short growing season, we have poor nutrients, my trees don't grow that quickly. Would that potentially change or no? I think not for a couple of different reasons. So one is just from a, you know, not even thinking about how much non-conductive wood is accumulating or anything like that. Just thinking about it from a purely tree health standpoint, anytime we re-injure some wood that has already been injured, basically it's already undergone compartmentalization, that doesn't just make more non-conductive wood, but it is an added additional stress to the tree. It increases the possibility of disease and decay because that's basically what compartmentalization is doing, right? It's trying to prevent the entry and spread of disease and decay-causing organisms. It's also trying to maintain the water transport column too, but 
basically anytime we are re-injuring tissue that's already been injured, that's more of a stress to the tree than just putting in a tap hole, an, an injury into clear conductive sapwood. So from a perspective as just doing the right things to take care of the trees that I am tapping for maple production, that alone raises a red flag for me. I'm already stressing the tree out to make a hole, extract the sap. Am I really going to find it acceptable to do something that makes it even more stressful for the tree than it needs to be? And then, of course, we can go into the issues of the accumulation of non-conductive wood. So yeah, these trees are going to make proportionally more non-conductive wood if we do these rejuvenation strategies. But if they're growing well, will that growth rate be enough to compensate for that additional non-conductive wood? And I want to say that in a lot of cases, the answer is probably going to be no. So if we look at how much non-conductive wood needs to accumulate before we start losing some significant amounts of money, the answer is not much. So we were, I don't know, just a off the cuff, because I don't have this in front of me, but you know, a study that Dr. Tim Perkins did looking at the impacts of our hitting non-conductive wood in our sugar bush and how it affected our economics, like just by going from hitting non-conductive wood I want to say from 4% of the time to 1% of the time in our small, at that point, less than 5,000 tap sugar bush, that was an increase in revenue of $5,000 just in changing the percentage of non-conductive wood we were hitting when tapping by 3%. So is adding the significant amount more non-conductive wood from rejuvenation, can it be overcome by super good growth rates and stuff like that? My answer is in the long run or even in the medium run, probably not, especially in the economic standpoint of it. So so love your trees, don't stress them out. And, you know, and it also goes back to, you know, how long do you want to be producing syrup for? You know, it's great to utilize that equipment for a longer period, but do you want to have a little trickle of production here and then less production in the spring, or would you rather just do it all at once? Right. And yeah, some of this really definitely comes back to just practicality. In a lot of conditions, it just makes things easier to put in one hole and <laughs> do it all at once and optimize things in your main sap load period to make sure you're getting the best yields possible. And I think that is the main take-home message for me and the message that I'd like to get out to producers that are thinking, well, my trees are good enough to do this too. Like I've got great growth rates and I've got, you know, warm temperatures to overcome and a, a weird climate for tapping. And I've, I can't possibly make enough production without bumping my taps or, you know, rejuvenating my tap holes. And my answer and response to that is you can improve the yield of your operation by the amounts that we saw in this study by doing a whole host of things that don't impact the health or sustainability of your trees. All right. So let's back away from thinking about fall tapping or any type of rejuvenation or additional tap holes or anything like that. And think about, I want to maximize without causing more stress to that tree. Sometimes we get too caught up in wanting to get more and more from these trees. 
And there's things we can do to get more from those trees without necessarily causing more stress that has to do more with our collection system. So there's lots of different things that we should be considering. And so, you know, you can still tap those trees a little earlier than normal, but, you know, making sure that you're tapping them correctly, that you're getting into new wood and making sure that you have some newer spouts or clean spouts, clean tubing is really going to be more beneficial ultimately than trying to just get every single drop across the whole entire dormant season. If with a little bit of careful management, careful operation, we can make that up without putting extra holes in the tree, extra stress for the tree, extra work for us. Yeah, that's really important because, I mean, those trees, we need those if we're going to keep an industry going. Great. Well, I appreciate all your time that you've spent with us, Abby. This is a lot of really interesting information and a, a different way of looking at tapping and ultimately, you know, kind of comes back to some of the, the tried and true methods that we've been working with. Totally. Well, thank you for having me. This is awesome. And I would say that if anybody would like to actually see the graphs that we were talking about or get a little bit more detail of either of these studies, they can either check out the Proctor Maple Research Center YouTube site for a couple of presentations that I've given on this study. And also a paper on this study is going to be in the December issue of the Maple Digest. Yeah, I would definitely recommend producers to, to check that out, to, to look at those graphs and really see the comparison. And you also have some work and you have some pictures in there and some of your papers on that difference in the compartmentalization that forms by doing some of those rejuvenation practices, which is pretty striking and interesting to see. Cool. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Well, great. Well, thank you for being with us today on Sweet Talk, Abby. Thanks, Adam. All right. Take care. You too. Well, Aaron, in my discussion with Dr. Vandenberg, she brought up a lot of great points about tapping early in the dormant season, like we just did. So are there any key things that surprise you or you found you know, particularly interesting? Yeah, Adam, I found it surprising that the tapping for a longer season didn't yield much more syrup per tap, but I like that she emphasized that every region can be different. For example, my sap yield in my fall tapping last year at the Arnott Forest was quite a bit different. We got a lot of sap. So that's important to note. And another thing that I, I think is worth mentioning is that there are a lot of difficulties of fall tapping, and one that I encountered was warmer weather. Last year we had temperatures in the 70s and 80s in November, and it would have been really hard to preserve that sap if I was actually going to boil it into syrup. So quality could have been a challenge. Yeah, Aaron, it's going to be interesting to see how our data differs from what they found in Vermont. So you and I are both seeing pretty big differences just between the Arnott Forest and the Eline Forest. And so that's why we have these two research forests with these different environments. And to be clear, at this point, we're not making any recommendations. We're talking about research, and there's still a lot more to be learned. So stay tuned for future updates on that topic. That's a good point. Thanks for joining us for Sweet Talk. See you next time, Aaron. Keep it sweet, Adam. Thank you for joining us for Sweet Talk, all things maple with Aaron and Adam. Sweet Talk is produced by the Cornell Maple Program and is made possible from funding from the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. All music was obtained from Blue Dot Sessions. For more information on all things maple, visit cornellmaple.com. Join us next time for more Maple Sweet Talk. Have a sweet day.